part 25 and I entitled today's message the reapers for an obvious reason I have some uh, concepts I would like to extend to you we're going to read the word of God and then I'm going to dive into a bit longer of an an intro this morning so we begin with uh, a concept that it's going to lead to our fill in the blank there on your sheet in front of you and it begins with a story um, this last week, I had the opportunity to go see a friend of mine from church that is at the final stages of battling cancer. Um, she is uh, very precious to me. We have a, a special relationship in the sense of we share the spiritual gift of sarcasm. And so when she's in church, she's messing with me. I'm joking with her. And she's far too young to be stepping out of this life. Well, I got a chance to go see her, and um, she has uh, an 18-year-old daughter, and her concern is largely for her daughter. When I went to go see her, there she was in her bedroom, and she's 97 pounds now, and she's all curled up in her bed, and she's real tired real sleepy and a lot of from the meds. And so I went in and I didn't know how much she was going to be awake. So um, I got in, I knelt down by the side of the bed and I laid my head on the pillow <laughs> and I, and I was in my tie and everything. And um, I laid down and I go, how you doing? She goes, I'm tired. I go, I know, I know. And she goes, we're sure there's a heaven, right? And I go, yes, we're sure. She goes, that's what I thought. And I go, and I said, well, you know, Mark, Russ, the guys and gals at work, they, they send you a hug and they're probably going to be jealous that I got a chance to see you. And they, they didn't. She goes, well, tell them to get over it. And I said, all right, I'll do that. So her spirit was, was sharp. She had asked hospice to come in and give her some more meds to make her sleep a little bit more often. But as I began to talk with her, I realized that all her concerns centered around her daughter. They centered around, is my daughter going to be okay? The questions about herself seemed very settled and very peaceful. Questions about the Lord, questions about passing from this life to the next, questions about her eternal existence. And it really brought me to the idea of saying, are we living a life today to prep for what's to come? Or are we really assuming that we're going to have a big lead-in time to where we can scramble and get everything done? We have a tremendous amount of cancer in this church. It's driving me crazy. I understand we're in a broken world and bad things happen to good people. I understand that disease is a part of the world in which we live in. I just don't like it. Right? I don't like losing my friends and family. That's uncomfortable to me. Now, those that are trusting in Jesus Christ certainly are going to a far better place than this one. And really, they're the ones taken care of and we're the ones to be pitied. But still, because of the amount of sickness and difficulty that we have in our congregation, I've been praying for a year about putting a date on the calendar to talk with our Heavenly Father about this kind of stuff. You're going to hear a lot more about it as we come closer, but I need you to jot a date down in your mind. Just in your mind. Keep your calendar clear. It's going to be on a Sunday evening, November 15th. What we're going to do is we're going to do a healing and worship night. We're going to do a night of praying and praising God. Never done that before in terms of praying for actual healing. I don't have the gift of healing. I don't personally know anybody that does. But I know an awful lot of people that know our Father in Heaven and they can walk up and ask and say, Dad, can we do anything different? Can we change this? If, if not so, all right. But we need to ask. So we're going to have a night where we're going to come together as a family and we're just going to spend the whole evening praying and praising God. That's it. But nevertheless, there are many of us that will be called home sooner than we would like. And I'm 
going to leave the challenge to you. Are we training for a day such as that? Are we living life now in a way that seems to give us peace in the future? Or are we literally going to wait and then scramble where we think that we're going to have time to be able to sort out the big stuff at the end? We're about to read a passage that talks a lot about finishing up the world. It's going to give us a glimpse as to how things from a heavenly perspective are going to look when this place shuts down. And what you'll find is it's the same theme as last week, which is there's only two camps, right? There's either God's children or God's enemies. You go, well, I don't, I wouldn't consider myself God's enemy. Well, then let me ask you this. Are you intimately God's children in his family? If you go, I don't know, I'm somewhere in between. You're not. You're only in one of the two camps. That's just how it goes. But are we living a life now that would live out what camp we belong to? What family we belong to? Are we training to finish well? I guess is the question that I have before us. The fill in the blank in front of you is simply this. Your decisions today directly impact your tomorrow. Your decisions today directly impact your tomorrow. So as we open up into the book of Revelation, we got to remember where we've been. What we're seeing is a bunch of commercials and snapshots of what's going to occur in the next few chapters. We saw three commercials, angelic commercials, fly by last week, right? We had the first angel. He comes flying through and he says, it's judgment time. Fear God, right? Then another angel comes flying by. He says, Babylon has fallen. In other words, the bad guys lose. Then the third snapshot flies by and it says, warning, do not, uh, do not put your loyalty and allegiance in the mark of the beast or in the Antichrist. Do not receive the mark 666, for you will be an enemy of God and partake in the same torment that Satan will. These three commercials just flashed before our eyes. And now John is about to see another snapshot of the end of the world as we know it. When we finish these two camps, we are about to step into the harshest of the book with the seven plagues or the seven final bulls of wrath of God. And then we move into other elements of the end of the world. Well, what do we do with all this? Is this suddenly now where we're looking at a piece in Revelation where, wait a second, we only got two final locations? I mean, why are you dropping that on me now? Okay, well, where am I going to be at? And are we going to panic? Is this the only time we hear about this stuff? No, it's not. Jesus talked about it all throughout his ministry. But let's take a look at what John saw. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14, verse 14. Last book in the Bible makes it easier to find if the Bible's handed to you. Let me see. It is page 874. 874 Revelation chapter 14 verse 14 it says this John said I looked and there before me was a white cloud and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud take your sickle and reap because the time to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle. Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as a horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. Man, that's a gruesome picture, yeah? Whoa, what in the world are we talking about? Well, that's what we've got to find out. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we set 
our lives before you today and we sit at your feet and we seek to learn. That, Lord, that as we listen to your word, as we try to sort it out, would you allow us to know what it is that we must alter in our lives right now to be honoring to you? For, Father, we are only interested in doing that which matters. Lord, we don't want to waste our time. We don't want to be down roads that don't matter. We ask, Lord, that you would make it clear, that you would make it understandable, and that you would give us the strength to follow you. For, Father, when you call us home, we not only want to be ready, but we want to be able to walk in knowing that we have pleased our Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we read that the earth is harvested and it's all done. We're only in chapter 14. There's 22 chapters in this book. So is it really that we're closing up the whole book now or is there more to come? Well, there's a typical concept in literature, especially in a lot of the Old Testament in Hebrew, and it's called chiasm, where basically you talk about points and then meet in the middle and right in the middle of your story, you tell the end, kind of a glimpse, a commercial. That's kind of what we're seeing here. Where he's saying, let me just let you know how this is all going to shake down. The earth is going to be divided into two camps. I just need you to know that. You go, okay, great. I appreciate the warning. All right. Have you ever heard the concept that says, if the Bible says it once, it's important. If it says it twice, it's really important. In other words, the Bible sometimes duplicates itself or repeats itself for the sake of trying to get your attention. Well, this concept of dividing into two camps is all over the Bible. We've been talking about it a little bit last week. Well, now I want to share with you a few parables of Jesus. As he walked through a place that we now know as Israel, and in his day was still the land of Israel in many ways, He's up in the north by the Sea of Galilee. He's walking around on a lot of the beaches, then out into the desert talking with the people. And he told stories. They're called parables. Parables are not allegories where every little detail means something and you've got to find the code. It's none of that. It's grab the main message and move on. That's a parable. Well, Jesus told a series of parables as he began going along. And these are a few of them. The first one, he said, there was... A man who had a field, and he went out and he sowed wheat into his field. Then he went away, and during the night, an enemy came and began to sow weeds into his field while he was asleep. As it began to grow up, they began to notice that there was weeds all over the place, right in the middle of the wheat. And they thought, what happened? And he said, an enemy clearly did this. So the harvesters, they came in and they said, you want me to clear it out? You want me to pull all the bad weeds out? He said, no, if you do that, you're going to tear up everything. Let's just wait. We'll wait for the full harvest to come in. We'll cut it all down and then we'll sort it at the end. And they said, all right. Well, the disciples are going, well, so... What are you talking about? So later on, they asked Jesus. He said, it's very simply this. The one who sowed the seed, that's me. I'm Jesus. Hi. The one who sowed the bad stuff, that's clearly Satan. The harvesters are the angels. They're going to come in, sweep through, clear it out, and sort it at the end. And that is you guys. All right. So then Jesus walks around. He said, it's kind of like... A guy that was fishing, he lowers down this huge net and he scoops it up. Remember, he's talking to a bunch of people that know fishing very well. Scoops up all these fish. He said, what do we do then when we get the fish to the land? They go, we sort them. So sure, they sort. Good fish, bad fish, right? Sort them out. Red fish, blue fish kind of thing, right? Sort the little fishies out. You get them all into their piles and then you destroy the ones that are not fit. Then Jesus says this. No one knows the hour of my return. For just like in the days of Noah, everybody's getting married and doing business and hanging out. Then suddenly it comes upon them and they seem to be completely caught off guard. I tell you this, there will be two men in a field working together. One will be taken, the other will be left. There will be two women at a hand mill. One will be taken, the other will be left. Then Luke adds in a third. There will be two in a bed. One will be taken, the other will be left. So it will be when the Son of Man returns, he said. Be ready. 
Then he says this. There were ten virgins. Five smart ones, five stupid ones. Right? That's, that, it's a paraphrase. Still means the same thing. They're waiting for the groom to show up. They're supposed to have their little candles lit and do their little parade with him. Well, he's taken forever. So they all fall asleep. Well, the smart ones brought extra oil in case they needed it. The stupid ones didn't. So all of a sudden the groom starts coming. Everyone goes, wake up, wake up, hurry up, light your lights. And then we got to wait for him. This is going to be exciting. Well, then their lamps went out. They didn't have enough oil. So they go, can we borrow some of yours? The other one said, no, we're smart. You're stupid. You need to go do something. So they took off to go buy some more oil while they were gone. The groom shows up, they all get to go into the party, and the stupid ones are left behind. Jesus said, be ready. Because some are getting in and some aren't. You start going, okay, Lord, I get it, all right? There's two camps. Okay, we've just, how many stories are you possibly going to tell? Okay, I get it. Fish and this, and he goes, hold on, I'm not done. This guy goes on a trip. And while he's gone on the trip, he takes his servants and he says, I'm leaving you guys with some stuff. I'm going to give you five. I'm going to give you three. I'm going to give you one. I want you to put this money into play. So when I get back, there's a harvest for me to reap when I get back. So immediately he takes off and they start putting their money to work. Well, the guy with one does what? Nothing. He hides it and doesn't care. It's called the parable of the talents. Most of you are familiar with it. So then the guy comes back and said, what'd you do with what I gave you? And this guy said, oh, I doubled mine. The second one goes, I doubled mine. And the third guy goes, I didn't do anything. And he said, you wicked and lazy servant, you're out of here. Cast them out where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. As a matter of fact, most of these stories end with weeping and gnashing of teeth, right? A lot of gnashing, right? All right. And you go, okay, so why, I don't get it. So why are we being separated? Because you didn't take me seriously. You don't, you don't care. You're not listening to me. He said, it's kind of like this. There's this shepherd and he's got all these flocks, right? Well, then when he sits down, he sorts the sheep from the goats. The sheep on his right hand, the goats on his left hand, on the right hand, he said, oh, so it will be with you. Those on the right hand, he will say, come into my presence to eternal life. For when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. In other words, you met the basic needs of my life. Well, when do we see that? Well, as you've done to the least of these, you've done unto me. To those on my left, the goats, you're out into eternal fire and torment. Why? Because when I was hungry, you gave me nothing. When I was thirsty, you gave me nothing. When I was naked, you gave me nothing. You did not care about me. When did we ever see you like that? As you've done to the least of these, you've done unto me. Two camps. Over and over and over and over and over again. And this is just a sampling. You think Jesus was trying to make a point? Yeah, I think so. John sees it in a visual. This is what it looks like. So we have two camps. What camp are we in? And are we living a life in such a way that that is being worked out in our lives? If we're really going to be welcomed into the kingdom, is that the type of life that seems to be lived? Does our life indicate our heart being connected to Christ? Because we are saved by what? By grace through faith alone. I'm not trying to give you any type of works business. Forget that. But do your works indicate that there's any saving faith at all? How are we living now? Because we seem to kind of just live for ourselves. And then when things get bad, well, then we start living for God. And maybe now in this difficult time in our recession, everybody seems to be refocused a little bit on the Lord. Praise God. I wonder sometimes why he ever lets things go well for us. Look at Revelation 14, 14, 14. Let's take it apart and see what we've got. Now, if my estimation is accurate in the way it went last night, we're going to go through this passage relatively quickly. So at the end, I'm going to ask you, has anybody got any questions about what I just taught? So I want you to think about that. If you have a question, you just go, well, that wasn't really clear. Then I want you, I want you to be able to ask me a question here in a second. But... 
Let's take a look at this. It says right here, John said, I looked and there before me was a white cloud. White is the color of what in Revelation? Purity, righteousness, holiness, right? So there's this white cloud and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man. Who's that? Jesus. How do we know that? Because Daniel said so. Daniel, the Old Testament prophet, the same guy that got thrown in the lion's den, he said this in Daniel 7:13. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. You understand John seeing the same thing. He, meaning Jesus, approached the ancient of days, that's the Father, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. When Daniel said that, John locked it in, immediately said, hey, I'm seeing the same thing. I'm seeing Jesus. Now, in the Old Testament, son of man really meant a guy. But then all of a sudden they began to see, wait a second, there is a man, but he's not just a man. He's the Messiah. He's the God man. Jesus, this is his favorite title for himself. I'm the son of man. They said, well, you're the son of God. And he said, yeah, but you understand what I'm saying. I'm the Messiah, right? Right. It was a loaded term. So John uses it right here. The one seated on the cloud was like a son of man. With a crown of gold on his head. Remember in Greek, in Revelation, there's two types of crowns. There's the Stephanos, which is the wreath that guys in war and in athletics would get when they win. And then there was the diadema, which is the royal crown. This is a victor's wreath made out of gold, meaning that Jesus was victorious. With a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Now, everybody know what a sickle is? That's the, uh, you know, the Grim Reaper thing that he's holding, the big, huge, long stick, and it's got the curved thing at the end. All right, well, there's also a handheld one of those where you got a handle about this long and you use it to cut down grain and wheat, or you can cut clusters and do pruning with it. That's the idea of what we're talking about. That's what a sickle is. And it's used in harvesting. So what we're about to see is some type of bringing in of a harvest of something that was planted. So it's a pretty common analogy, not too hard to grasp. This one seems to be the bit of a longer one. Then another angel, it says, came out of the temple. We're talking about heaven, the temple of heaven, meaning God's presence. He came out from the presence of God and he called in a loud voice with authority as an announcement to him who is sitting on the cloud. Who's that? Jesus. And he says to Jesus, take your sickle and reap. First of all, why is he telling Jesus what to do? Second of all, where to get that from? Right? The first thing is it's a quote from Joel three thirteen. He's quoting the old Testament, but why is he telling Jesus what to do? A lot of people go, well, this can't be Jesus. It's got to be an angel because an angel can't tell Jesus what to do. Hold on a second. Where did the angel just come from? The presence of God. Angels give messages on behalf of God. So no, an angel's not telling Jesus what to do. He's going, all right, this is what the orders are. This is God's will. And he tells him to go and reap. And you go, well, shouldn't Jesus know that? Do you remember when he was down here? All his disciples go, hey, when are you going to return? What did he say? I don't know. That's not for me to know. It's not for the angels to know. It's for my father in heaven. He'll reveal it when it's time. In other words, the angel goes, I got the message. You ready to go? All right, fire. You're on. I wonder if this is not a drama explaining that one point, which is the son is waiting for the father's word and saying, you give the word, I'm on. He got the word, so now he goes out to reap. It says... Because the time to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is ripe, meaning it's ready to go. That word for ripe actually means overripe. It's over ready, man. Let's get this thing going. It's over time. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was harvested. So who was harvested? The wheat. Now, it's interesting because sometimes you read the story and in the bad guys are harvested first, then the good guys. Then you read another story, and it's the good guys and then the bad guys. And it keeps reversing back and forth. The point of a parable, 
was to get the general idea. It's going to scoop up two groups. We believe this to be the folks that are righteous. Why? Because the next group that gets sweeped up gets thrown into the wine press of God's fury. Right? So we go, all right, this is a righteous being gathered up. As a matter of fact, if you believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, remember that fancy term we've been throwing around every once in a while? If you believe in that, most people go, that's it right there. When Jesus sweeps through and takes the righteous from the earth, one is taken, the other is left. Then as he gathers up all the righteous to himself to protect them, then the rest are left behind. There you go. Works out real well. Okay? So most people look at that and they go, pre-trib, right there. There you go. It's solved. Okay? Is this a one-time event? Is this a process? Is the harvesting... That's obviously the argument. People are going, well, hold on a second. Harvesting usually takes a while. We know that the scooping up of the enemy seems to be in stages. So what's going on? That's why there's an argument and a debate. But we do know this. What is the point? The righteous will be scooped up to God... And the wicked will be cast out. We know that for sure. So let's read about the next one. It says another angel came out of the temple in heaven and he too had a sharp sickle. Now this is a short one. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle. All right, pause. Who's this guy? He's got two weird things. Number one, he's in charge of the fire and he came from the altar. Who's this angel? Well, in between the Old Testament and the New Testament were 400 years of silence. We don't have those books in our Bible, right? But there was a lot of writing going on. People came up with some really bizarre concepts. One of the concepts that developed during that time was a whole angel scheme, meaning this is what the angels do. And literally they assigned angels, sometimes by name, to different elements on the earth. For example, this is the angel of fire, this is the angel of water, this is the angel of flowers, this is the angel... You know, they had an angel for everything. Angel of lightning, angel of thunder. Is that accurate? I don't see any biblical evidence for that. Is that what he's talking about? That this is the angel who had the charge of fire? The fire angel, right? No. It's likely referring to a particular angel we read about in chapter 8. What was his job? to watch over the altar of God, which is what? The incense altar, where the prayers of the saints are rising up before God. What did he do? He scooped up some of that incense of prayers and he hurled it to the earth. Do you remember? That guy, the guy in charge of the fire. In other words, he's watching over the altar of God and he's telling the Lord, these prayers are rising up. They are crying out, when will you come back? Are we ready to go? Let's go. So everybody's working together, and he is scooping up from the fire. That same guy makes this announcement. It says, he came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle. Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine meaning from all the rest of the people, because its grapes are ripe. And that word for ripe is not overripe. It means it's fully grown. It's ready for harvest. It's perfect. Let's do this. The angel swung his sickle on the earth and gathered its grapes and threw them into the great wine press of God's wrath. Okay, that's a visual. I think we can all pick it, picture it, right? You cut the grapes you throw them over into the wine press. What's a wine press? There are two presses that are very common in biblical literature. The wine press and the oil press. Right? Or olive press is really what you probably call it. Now the wine press, let's think old school winemaking. Very simplistic. You have a brick or rock trough. And then you pour all the grapes in there and what do you do with them? You stomp on them, right? So you take off your shoes, you're out there, you're stomping away, and what are you doing? You're crushing the grapes down into juice so you can remove the pulp, and the juice has to go somewhere. Instead of it hanging out where you're crushing and filling up, there's a trough that goes to a lower basin that all the juice fills up, runs out over the trough, down into a lower basin. That's where they would gather up the juice of the grapes. Now, the picture here is he just cut off a bunch of clusters of grapes, threw them in, and they were crushed. These are people. Do you understand what's going on here? This is the visual. 
In order to make it more vivid, it goes on and says this. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city. What city? Jerusalem. Why are they outside the city? What's the significance of being outside versus trampling them inside? Defilement. This is the holy city. You don't defile the holy city with blood. Do you guys remember where Jesus was crucified? Where? Outside the city. Remember, they let him outside the gates. Why? Because they weren't about to do anything bad by crucifying a guy inside the city. That would defile the city. So Jesus, the criminal, Jesus, the wicked one, in their opinion, Jesus, the blasphemer. Oh, they had to get him out of the city, right? Oh, we can't have him die in here. Let's go hang him up on a cross where all the bad guys go. Then we'll let his blood drip there. Do you understand? That's the horrifying mockery. Do you understand that's when Jesus, who is the sinless, pure Lamb of God, has everybody shielding their kids' eyes from him, and don't look at that guy, he's a bad guy, and everybody's making up lies and stories about him, and everybody thinks he's terrible. He can't even die in the city. He's got to shed his blood outside the city, the city that he loves. And he's out there hanging on a cross, and everybody thinks that he's terrible. There he hangs in shame. Outside the city walls. See, outside is for the enemies. But Jesus was not an enemy. But he became so that we might not be enemies of God. He took all that hit for us. That's the glorious part of it. So then what? He'd now take all these grapes, you throw them into this wine press, which is judgment in the Old Testament when they're crushing. That's all about the judgment thing. And here comes God begins to crush down his enemies, stomping on them beneath his feet, meaning in domination. And then what does it say? Let's get super graphic and blood, meaning not grape juice. But these are people that are being crushed. So what's coming out the trough? Blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as a horse's bridle. How high is that? Average four feet. Blood this deep. I'm 6'3", right? So you got up to here. This high. Were you going to wade through that? You go, well, for, for how long? Like Is it like a puddle? 1,600 stadia. How many are people that are calculating stadia? Right? I don't, anybody know what a stadia is? Okay, here's how long it is. It's 184 miles. So it's four feet deep, 184 miles. That's called a lot of blood. Why 184 miles? Why 1600 stadia? I don't know. There's all kinds of guesses. Some people go, it's the approximate distance from the top of Israel to the bottom. So is it saying the whole country? What's it saying? Some people go, no, 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 it's the uh, number of earth, which is four times the ten, which is the number of completeness. And okay, whatever, maybe it's pretty, it's pretty hard to calculate all that. For some reason, it just means there's a lot of blood. There's a lot of enemies. There's a lot of death. Most scholars believe that that is a snapshot of Armageddon. Anybody ever heard that phrase? The Battle of Armageddon. We're going to be reading about that in Revelation 19. We'll read about that and study that later on. That is known as the great battle, right? Against the Antichrist, the bad guy's forces, and the rider on the white horse and his forces when they clash on the earth and there's this huge massive war. In other words, it's a war, but you can kind of picture it as a scooping. Depends on how you want to look at it. Okay, so, what do we do with this? What do we do with this picture? First thing, I need you to understand this concept. To properly deliver, you must fully destroy the enemy. You go, what does that mean? Okay, you all know the difference between rescuing and delivering? Okay, if there's a bad guy chasing you, and I go and I go, hey, quick, get in my car. And you jump in my car and we speed away from the bad guy. I just rescued you. But bad guy's still out there lurking. He can come find you again. If I deliver you, bad guy's no more. 
right? To properly deliver, the enemy must be destroyed completely. Why all these pictures of wrath, destruction, blood, all this stuff? What's the point? You've been delivered completely. The enemy is reduced to nothingness. Whenever you see this viciousness of God, this crushing of the enemies, you're supposed to go, praise God. Why? Because you are free. The enemy can't come after you anymore. He's not just going to show up around a corner. He's not going to pop his head back up. He's done. And we're supposed to be encouraged by God destroying the enemy. We keep going, but what if that's one? What if that's me? Don't let it be you. That's why we keep having these parables. I already told you, Jesus told the story over and over and over and over and over. So don't let it be you. Don't be in that camp. If you're not in that camp, that's not for you. That is saying the bad guys are going to go away. And I need you to understand this. The Bible says the ones that the sun sets free will be what? Free indeed. Let me ask you a question. Either Jesus died for your sins or he didn't. But if he died for your sins, why do you live as if he didn't? We don't even understand freedom. We don't even understand. Do you get it? He's trying to make the point. Don't you see, everyone, the enemy, Satan, has been crushed. That's what I do, God said. Oh, I set you free, and you are free completely. Stop living as if you're not. Stop living as if you're in bondage. You are not. I have crushed the enemy on the cross. I did all that was necessary once for all. Embrace that freedom. And then finally, there's two camps, right? So here's your question. What must we do today to live a life in line with the camp that we belong to? This is a practical challenge. I'll ask you a question, then I'll let you ask me a question. Do you want a multiple choice end? We seem to like those. Do you understand what I'm saying? Where it's kind of like, well, there's, there's heaven, hell... And then there's like C, whatever C is, where you can fill in that bubble and you kind of go, well, I don't know if I really want to go all out for Jesus, but I certainly don't want to burn alive forever. So I would love like option C. That'd be great. You know, it's funny. There is no C and yet we all seem to live like there is a C. Huh? That's weird. We all seem to kind of have this, oh, I'm in the middle kind of thing. Oh, I'm way over more on Jesus' side. Look, and we look at it like a spectrum, right? There's hell on one side, there's heaven on the other side, and we kind of go, woo, and slide on the little spectrum thing. There's only two camps. So what camp are we, are, are we in and how are we living that out? All right, fire it back to you. Here we go. In this message, I've shared a bunch of different stuff. What along the way is lodged in your heart and you go, I don't get it? Anybody have any questions? Literally, where you go, I have a question. Mike. Uh, question I've got, you know, I'm confused with the sickle and the grape along with John 15. Okay. Where Jesus says, I'm the branch, mm-hmm. and heaven Father, is, and we're supposed to be the vine, mm-hmm. but the branch is the vine. Mm-hmm. That's where I'm confused with the two. Okay. The question is... In John 15, there's a lot about this idea of I am the vine, you are the branches. And usually when we talk about grapes and stuff, it usually ends up talking about, oh, it must be the church, right? It must be Christians. Well, what it ends up doing is the vine and branches. Remember, he also said to be detached from the vine, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So the clusters actually represent lives. So this is in line with that because... He's saying, we have a bunch of lives, some are tied to me, some will be cut off and cast away. So they're actually the same thing. There's, there's no difference, it just means lives. What else you got? Any other questions? Yeah. Uh, do you believe in pre-trip or mid-or-post, and why, or do you just uh, 
Um, the question was, do I personally believe in pre, mid, or post, or do I just trust God to find out what's going to happen? Um, uh, me personally, I have always tried to kind of keep that because I never wanted to lead anybody and then go, oh, well, I have to do that because Lance thinks that. Remember, I've always encouraged you to think on your own and to disagree with me. I have found that I slide on the issue, and here's why. When I study biblically, I tend to lean towards post. I tend to live as if pre is true. For example, I'm always going, Jesus can come anytime. Jesus can come anytime. And I'm literally walking around every moment not knowing if I'm going to finish the message. I never know if I'm going to wake up the next day. I never know if I'm going to finish my meal because Jesus could show up, right? Which is why I eat more dessert first than... <laughs> so I'm constantly thinking, oh, Jesus is going to come back anytime. And I believe that he can. I believe that we can look in scripture and if he comes and immediately and you go, but you had to do this first. He'll go, no, I didn't. And then what are you going to do? You're going to argue with him? He can just show up, right? So I tend to live as if pre is true. And I have been pretty much taught that my whole life. I was raised in the environment of this idea of a pre-tribulation rapture. So that's pretty much lodged in my head. However, the more study I do, and I have all these running charts in my computer, where I'm searching out biblical evidence and sliding arguments over here and over here, honestly, I don't know. But I will tell you that I tend to lean much more because there's far more evidence that keeps telling the saints, hang in there, hang in there. And if he's constantly going, hang in there, why are we hanging in there? We've always been persecuted. We've always been thrashed. Why would the end of the world be any different? So I wrestle back and forth. I don't tend to go towards the mid-trib perspective personally, merely because there's not as much biblical evidence. But is it possible? Absolutely. There are brilliant people on every side. So what do I do? I live my life that I, in such a way to say, am I pleasing the Lord today? I don't know what he's going to do. I don't know how it's going to finish up. But I need to be prepped and ready for whatever scenario flies because I want to be on God's side. So that, that's pretty much what I got. Yes. Oh, we have a question in the back. What do you use to self-diagnose what camp you're in? The Bible seems to give us a couple indicators. The first one seems to be more factual. Do you believe that Jesus Christ died, came in the flesh, died for our sins, rose again? There's a certain amount of facts. Those are the first things. But demons know the facts, right? They're not saved. So the second one to diagnose is then you say, how am I living? Am I living in a way that my word believe is loaded in with things like trust and obedience? Those are things demons do not do. They do not trust in Jesus. They do not obey the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's when you start examining your life where you start going, am I living in such a way that it appears that I own this? Because really you can self-delude, right? And I think that's what all our fear is. Am I just leading myself astray? Well, you can look at the pattern of your life and go, am I living as if I understand that Jesus died for my sins? As I'm saved by grace through faith alone, is that worked out now in my salvation? Do I live my life in a way where I'm falling in love with Jesus more and more every day? Is there a way where I have realigned all my priorities to keep trying to put Jesus on the top of every list? Have I tried to make him the master of my life by putting him on the throne and not just living for myself? Do I tend to see the fruit of the spirit pour out my life naturally, meaning where it comes out and you begin to own it? Things like love, joy, peace patience, kindness, goodness, you know, the list and the idea. So you can self-evaluate. Then I tend to, because I'm paranoid, right? I tend to ask other people where I look at other people and go, listen, you're looking at my life. Are you seeing Jesus operate in my life? Are you seeing him demonstrated in my life? Has there been a change in me? Am I growing more and more Christ-like? So there's a lot of indicators that seem to be whether or not you are a follower of Jesus Christ or not. All right? Yeah. I missed that. What's that? Oh. Yeah, yeah. What's interesting, she asked the question, the long and short sickle, I mentioned that there's one that Jesus kind of had the long one and the angel had the short one. She said, what's the significance between the two? I have no idea. 
yeah, I didn't mention it because I don't know, and none of the scholars knew, and everyone that I examined said, oh, that's weird. Okay, it was not helpful, so I have absolutely no idea. Yeah. Right. How do we deal with right. She brought up uh, perhaps the most difficult question of all, which is we were grafted in. Y'all remember the picture where it has Israel being the family of God and it said they were disobedient. And so they were there's they were broken off and we were grafted in. Right. And then it says there's going to be a regrafting. And he actually warned the church. And he's like, listen, you adhere to me. Do you understand that? Because if I broke them off in the first place, I will break you off right now. And there's all these warnings in scripture of going, don't you dare walk away from me. That's not what we're doing. So she made it personal. She said, what about all our friends and family and our kids that keep saying, oh, I'm into Jesus. And they're not even living like it. They're walking all the way, way over here. There's no indicator that Christ is in their life whatsoever. And so, you know, well, they received Jesus when they were younger. And how do you reconcile those things? What do we do with that? Ultimately, the question is what? Can you lose your salvation? That's really where we're back to. And what's interesting is the every time you study this subject in depth, you get everybody kind of saying the same thing. Um, those that are much more of a Calvinistic position would immediately go, listen, we were brought in by God. It's not about you. So whatever these kids do. The Lord scooped them up before the beginning of time, and it doesn't matter what they're going to do. You can never stop being a child of God. I mean, your kid can rebel, your kid can freak out, but he will get them home because they are kids and you can't stop being a kid. You can be rebellious, but you're still my child. Um, On the other side, the bit more of the uh, free will side would say, hold on, the Bible is full of concepts that say you hang in there. You don't walk away. If you walked away, it's clear you weren't even a part of us in the first place. So everybody ends up settling on the same issue, which is look at the indicators of your life. You cannot know whether somebody outside of yourself is saved. You only look at the external evidence and you have to go, listen, I'm going to keep praying for them. I'm going to keep hanging in there, but I cannot tell if they are saved or not. There are many that will be living a life that is super moral and looks awesome and they're not saved at all. And then there's those that are walking around thrashing everybody in total chaos and they are saved. So I would just say that for only for yourself, would you know whether or not your heart is settled in the Lord and whether or not you're sold out? However, we cannot know for anyone outside of ourselves. So I, and you, and if you're asking me, do I believe in predestination or free will? That's a whole other message. That'll take about three hours. Yeah, Richard. Right. Right. The question is, why does it seem that the pre mid post, y'all know what I'm talking about. Jesus is going to come before the seven year tribulation in the middle or in the end. Why has it become a divisive issue to where people literally go, I can't have fellowship with you because we disagree. Why has that become such a big problem? And I would tell you this. I think the heart of it comes down to as much as everyone wants to make it sound fancy. It's I want to be right. And if I'm not right, then that means you're right. And I'm not okay with that. But I believe what I believe so strongly. And then they start lacing it through all of scripture. For example, they'll go, well, if that's true, then this is true. And they start reading backwards into it. They come up with this concept of the end and then they back it up and they go, well, if you believe in mid trip, that means Jesus Christ isn't going to come rescue us. I'm not going to follow a God like that. What? He's going to leave me out there to hang. So now he's going to let me see some of it. He's going to wait for me to get all freaked out. Then he's going to grab me. What kind of God is that? I don't want to. Do you understand the problem? People start reading way too much about what they think about God based on their eschatology or end times view. And so they begin to get mad at each other. They begin to go, well, you're you're telling me that God is like this. I believe God is like this. He always takes care of me. And the other one goes, what are you talking about? He's made us strong that we might survive and live through it. Why are you trying to tell me that God's suddenly just going to rescue us from everything? He hasn't done that with people in China or in Sudan right now. Then the other person argues back. 
people end up getting so entrenched in their views and they make it too heavy and too loaded and they begin to get antagonistic towards one another. As I told you at the beginning of this series, that's the whole reason why I don't like the camps and I was so nervous to teach Revelation because I was afraid of people getting antagonistic towards one another. Listen, if you want to disagree with me, that's fine. But we've got to love each other along the way. It's okay to dialogue. It's okay to go, I don't agree with you. But that doesn't mean that we can't hang out. Listen, just because we don't agree on the facts of how it's going to end doesn't mean that we shut each other off. Keep talking and listening. If Jesus wanted it to be so explicit, he would have just said in a sentence, I am coming at this exact moment. Don't argue about it. But he didn't. He left it gray for a reason. And a lot of that has to do with saying, listen, I'm not interested in just outcomes. I'm interested in relationship and processes. I'm interested in you walking with me. And if I just sit there and give you one little thing, you'll always run to the end result. And we won't even be walking together at all. Well, we ran out of time. You guys, thank you very much. I don't ever do that because I never end early. So really, you go, well, how come we don't do that more often? Because I talk too long. That's why. So as we wrap this up, I just want you to, I just, I hope that this series has been a blessing. I hope that this series has changed the way that you look at the world, changed the way you look at your life, changed the way you look at Jesus Christ and God. I would hope that you know him more. I would hope this allows you to reach out better, to love more. This is not academics. This is life and transformation. And I just hope that this is building you up, equipping you, training you, that you may step out and lead the world to Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you, Lord, for... Uh, opening our eyes that father we have so many questions there are so many things in our heart and we're so quick to divide father i ask that you would send once again a spirit of unity amongst us that lord that as we sit down and study and learn that lord you would reveal what we need to know lord as little spoiled kids you've told us so much that we want to know all the details but you haven't told us Allow us to be content with what you have revealed, and we will continue to chase after you. For Jesus, we want to know you every day, not just at the end. In your name we pray. Amen.